let's take our Bibles and turn back to the book of Philippians. I'm sad we're getting to halfway at Philippians because I love this book so much. And uh, we've been studying it for a few months, and we'll continue to study it um, into May, and probably it'll, it'll last into June now um, because we had Good Friday, I mean, uh, Palm Sunday and Easter. But we get to chapter 3 this morning, Philippians chapter 3. Thank you for bringing your Bibles. And uh, sometimes when we get to a book like this, um, you know in your Bible you have chapter divisions and you see maybe titles over those. Uh, in our Bible study methods class, which I hope to offer again this fall, uh, we do this. We, we establish uh, sections of Scripture. We put titles over them, try to uh, clarify exactly what's going on in that part of the text. And sometimes when, when Scripture does this, the people that kind of set Scripture out and interpreted the text and, and laid it out, sometimes the, the chapter divisions aren't as natural as we want them to be. They, they seem like maybe they're in the middle of a thought or, or there's some kind of theme that's carrying through. It's rare, but it happens. But in, in this particular case, the start of chapter 3 is a perfect chapter division because it represents kind of a change in theme and a change in tone for Paul as he writes to the Philippians. Um, last week we studied, remember the end of chapter 2, about Timothy and Epaphroditus and how they were honoring uh, the example of Christ through their faithful and sacrificial service. And how Paul talked about that, that that's extremely critical, that if we're going to reach what he calls this corrupt and perverse generation, and our generation is corrupt and perverse by every measure, I don't think that's a debatable point at all. Um, that's the reality if you look at any uh, sense of the news or anything on TV or any movies, you know that our generation is corrupted, crooked and corrupt and perverse. So he says if we're going to have any kind of a spiritual impact on that, that we've got to be faithful and we've got to be sacrificial in our service. So he's explained that, and he gets to the end of what we know as chapter 2, and it seems almost like he's, he's kind of drawing the letter to a close, like, like he's maybe thinking, all right, well, I've kind of said what I need to say. And then it's like you can look in Scripture and you can see the Holy Spirit say, you're not done yet. There's more I want you to say. And I'm so glad that the Holy Spirit stirs Paul here because he moves into a new discussion in verses three, uh, chapters 3 and 4 about the purpose and the goal of our lives as believers. And then in chapter 4, he writes what I think is one of the greatest chapters on personal application in all of Scripture. So the Holy Spirit stirs him. He's writing about Timothy and Epaphroditus. Look at their example. And, and he's kind of bringing it down, rounding third base. And all of a sudden the Holy Spirit says, nope, go back because there's more. And in this section, he writes two of the most powerful and informative and encouraging chapters outside of the Gospels. And the theology in chapter 3, which we're going to study over the next three or four weeks, the theology in this chapter, Philippians chapter 3, is absolutely essential for us to understand. Because we've got to offset the devil's strategy, and we've even got to overcome some of our spiritual backgrounds. Now in terms of the enemy's attack, since the Garden of Eden, since Genesis chapter 3, the push has been, and we've talked about this many times, the push has been to live for yourself and to worship yourself and to prove yourself worthy. And in doing that, that is a natural opposition 
to a need for God. That's a natural opposition to, to worshiping God. And as we look around culture, that message, live for yourself, love yourself, worship yourself, prove yourself, everything's about self, that, that message pervades every single part of our culture. I, I tried to think this week of one area of culture where that's not true, and I couldn't. It's in politics, it's in music, it's in sports, it's in movies, it's in TV, it's in music, and, and, and it's even in, in religion. A constant environment of self-promotion uh, and self-sufficiency. But here's the problem with that. It is a false economy of confidence. Not only because it contradicts everything that we see in Scripture, not only because it, it goes against everything that we're told is true and right in the Bible, but also because it's not sustainable. We're going to see this more in depth next week, and I hope you've been reading ahead and studying and praying, but, but eventually self fails. Eventually self is humbled, and it's proven again and again that having confidence in ourselves and confidence in our own worth is a losing way to live. In fact, the Spirit makes it abundantly clear here in chapter 3 through, all, uh, through Paul's personal example. Because Paul had the resume. Paul had the merits. And if there was anybody that could look at his life and say, look, if we're going to get into heaven because of, of good works, it's me. And he wasn't being falsely confident. He was absolutely right. But Paul in chapter 3 says, what I have come to understand and what the reality of my life is and how my life has changed is that the only way to experience salvation, the only way to experience joy, the only way to experience any kind of contentment is to completely lose confidence in yourself. It's to completely lose confidence in your own, and we would have to put this in air quotes, everybody loves air quotes, right? In your own righteousness. I felt goofy even doing that. There is no confidence in self. There is no confidence in our own righteousness. The Bible even says, not only should you have no confidence in yourself, but you have to go to the other extreme. You have to deny yourself and humble yourself and even ultimately hate yourself compared to how much you love God. It's the only way it works. It's the only way the equation will balance. It's the only way there can be any sense of joy and contentment because self struggles against God. It's the eternal struggle that goes all the way back to what Satan did. Satan said, I don't want to serve God. I want to be like God. I want to be God. In fact, I want to take over. I don't want to worship him anymore. I don't want to serve him anymore. I think I can do it better. He takes a third of the angels out of heaven. They rebel. God casts them out. Satan sets his eyes on God's new creation, man. And he says, you know what? I think I'll mess with God's creation. I think I'll corrupt man because if I can corrupt man and teach man the same thing that I'm convinced of myself, that if you are God and not God, it'll be much better. And man bought into it hook, line, and sinker. Yes, we can be God. Yes, we're better than God. Yes, we don't need to report to God. We don't need to serve God. We don't need to worship God. We don't even need to care about God. It would be so much better if we're God. And that lie continues today. So look at what Paul says in response to this in chapter 3 and verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again to you is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. 
Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, I'm found blameless. Now, look at the first thing Paul says in verse 1. Because he starts this new section as the Spirit kind of stirs him and says, all right, take it in a different path now, Paul. I, I want you to write this to the Philippians. Notice that the first thing he says is rejoice in the Lord. I don't know about you, but I need to hear that message again and again and again. I need to be reminded again and again, rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because it's so easy to get discouraged. It's so easy to get disheartened by what's going on in the world. It's so easy to get discouraged by sin. But it's interesting that the Philippians would have been far more receptive to this than the other churches that were living for Christ. Because the Philippians were living for Christ. They were walking with the Lord. You know, it's tough to tell somebody that's not walking with the Lord to rejoice in the Lord because they don't have that perspective. That's not how they're thinking. It's not their desire. They're not looking to the Lord for instruction. They're not looking to the Lord for strength because self still has too much place. And that creates a conflict and a disunity and a division in our hearts. So if you're lacking in joy this morning, if, if you can't say, yes, the Lord is good and praise his name and I've got struggles the Bible tells me I'm going to. The Bible tells me I'm going to have trials. It tells me I'm going to be facing difficulty. It tells me I'm going to be opposed. But listen, that's not going to drag me down because the joy of the Lord is my strength. If we can't say that this morning, then we have to evaluate, and there's a direct cause and effect relationship here. If we're lacking in joy, it has to mean there's too much self. Let me say that again. Because that's a hard sentence even for me to say. If we are lacking in joy in the Lord, it means there's too much self. You say, well, Paul, you don't know my circumstances. And, and this is, yeah, I do. I've been through them. I understand them. I'm not saying I, I have it accomplished. Listen, there are many days I lack joy in the Lord. But if we're lacking joy in the Lord, that's a, that's a warning sign. That's a, that's a clanging bell. It's a red flag that's waving where the Holy Spirit is saying, look, you're lacking in joy. That means there's a problem. That means there's too much self. And that was true when you read through the New Testament and you look at the New Testament churches, what's the one thing that was lacking in Corinth? Joy. Galatia, there was very little joy. Ephesus, that almost took Timothy out of the ministry, there was little joy. The only real place that Paul can write to and say, rejoice in the Lord, is Philippi. Why? Because Philippi was walking with the Lord. And he knew what they were fighting against. He knew there was rampant idol worship in Philippi and the other towns. And he knew that, that there was Gnosticism that was rising, the love of knowledge and being intellectual and, and thinking through things. And there was a lot of skepticism about Jesus. And Philippi couldn't look at other churches and say, well, at least we have Ephesus to fall back on because they're stronger than us. 
Philippi is kind of a lone wolf out there, really serving the Lord. And they look around at Thessalonica and Galatia and Ephesus and Corinth and all the other churches, and they say, where's the strength? Where is the love for God? So Paul says, look at it, verse 1 again. i got to remind you, and it's not, it's not a burden to do this, but i got to remind you, rejoice in the Lord. Value living for Christ. It starts with this. Rejoice in the Lord. Church this morning, believer this morning, rejoice in the Lord. I know that's hard to do. A lot of days. Life oppresses us and suppresses feelings of, of fulfillment and fulfilling of, of happiness and their spiritual attack. And the devil's trying to dissuade us from trusting in God. But listen, that's exactly when and why we're supposed to rejoice in the Lord. Because here's what happens. The enemy knows that when we rejoice in the Lord, it disables him. He knows that when we rejoice in the Lord, that it empowers us to move on to maturity. And the devil hates it when we move on to maturity because that handicaps him. He doesn't have the power then when he comes up against a strong believer who trusts the Lord and prays and serves and is on fire for Christ. He looks at that and says, I'm not messing with that person. I'm going to mess with the person that I can find that's weak. Rejoice in the Lord and the power of his might. The Bible says, put on the whole armor of God and prepare yourself for the battle. Because listen, you and I this week, you and I today, you and I right now are in a battle. And we can't get lulled to sleep and thinking, well, the battle's over there. Like, like sometimes I think our, our government, not a political statement, I'm making an example. Our government kind of thinks, well, the battle's over there. No, the battle's right here. It's right here. It's among us. And we are in a battle this morning. We're in a spiritual battle. And we can't say, well, I'll just kind of... Met. No, the battle is strong. The enemy is prowling around, seeking whom he may devour. He's shooting his darts at us. He's trying to attack us. He's trying to drag us down. And if we just stand there and go, well, I don't know what's going on. It's not going to work. Rejoice in the Lord, be strong in the Lord, power of his might, put on the full armor of God. We've got to keep reminding ourselves what the Lord's done. We've got to keep declaring the greatness of God. We've got to keep reveling in the grace of God. We've got to find strength and comfort in his forgiveness. We've got to find power in the Holy Spirit. Listen, when we do that, it changes everything. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It's your stronghold. If we want to be strong in the Lord, it starts with rejoicing in the Lord. Now, that moves us into verse 2, where Paul says there are going to be people and there are going to be things that try to rob you of that joy. And in verse 2, he names three groups, three factions that will not only rob us of our joy, but they'll also damage the body of Christ with their negative influence and their evil intentions. So Paul says here, notice the word in verse 2. I don't know what it is in your version. In my version, it's beware. Beware. The word in the Greek literally means keep an eye on them. Watch them. Be on guard. Make sure you're not distracted or inattentive or indifferent or, or thinking that the threat it doesn't exist or that it's gone away. He says, within the body, beware of this. 
Beware of this attitude. And it's going to always be external. There will always be these forces that we're going to see pushing on us from outside the body. But he says inside the body, we've also got to be make, make sure that we're on guard against this. I found in 28, I think I've been in ministry 28 years now, almost three decades. I found that, that these agendas, this, this attack of the enemy never goes away. Every church I've served in has faced it externally and internally. Every church I've attended, every pastor I've talked to deals with these things. Three different factions, three different groups that, that aren't really living for Christ. And I want to encourage you, maybe write these down or if you underline. And the reason I, I suggest that and encourage that is because we've got to analyze ourselves. We've got to say to ourselves, all right, Holy Spirit, convict me and teach me now. Do I fall into this? Do I, am I inclined to, to do these behaviors because these are going to damage me and they're going to damage the body? And we also, the second reason why we need to write them down is not only to analyze and ask the Holy Spirit to teach us, but we've also got to be aware of them and understand them so we can be alert about their influence. Hey, the first group. The first group he calls the dogs. Kind of a harsh name, don't you think? But it's very descriptive. The Jews used to refer to the Gentiles as dogs because they saw the Gentiles as impure and lesser them and kind of dirty and nasty. So the Jews would refer to the Gentiles as dogs. Now the tables have been turned. Now the Gentiles are the ones that are responding to Christ. They're responding to the word of God. They're responding to the Holy Spirit. And the Jews are the ones that are pushing God away. So it's kind of ironic that, that he names this. But what does he mean by this? What does he mean by beware of the dogs? Well, the dogs fell into two different groups of people. The first dogs were those who were acting spiritual, but were actually impure spiritually. Like many of the Jews were doing at this point. This group uh, really uh, thinks that they love the Lord, but they still have a great love for the world. And they may not even realize or, or may not even care that they're not living for Christ because they become deluded by a false sense of security. Listen now, that, that because I made a decision for the Lord, even though I haven't grown spiritually, I'm still on track with where I need to be. How many know that when you receive Christ, that that's the start of the maturation progress? A baby doesn't stay a baby. We dedicated three babies, three young children last week. Those babies in, in six months, in six years, in 60 years, they aren't going to still be babies, right? How many know that's true? They're going to grow up. They're going to mature. They're going to progress. They're going to get teeth. They're going to learn to walk. They're going to learn to go to the bathroom by themselves. They're going to learn to be sufficient. They're going to be dependent, but then they're going to keep growing and growing until you reach the point, like I did last night, where you're in the parking lot of the mall with your son driving the car. <sighs> I survived. He did really well, actually. And you look over and you go, wait a minute. You were just in my arms. What are you doing steering my van? And then you say, in two years, you're going to college. And then you'll meet somebody and get married, and then I'm going to become a grandfather. 
And then I'm going to get older and you're going to get older because that's what maturation is. As believers, we can't stay babies. If we've trusted in Christ, the Bible says grow up. Grow in your faith. Grow in your knowledge. Grow in your maturation. Grow in your ministry. He says the problem with the first group of dogs is that they still want to be worldly, but they say they're believers. And I'm going to tell you, as pastors and and ministers and servants of God and fellow believers, that's hard to watch because so often what characterizes that is you can't reason with them. Then there's a second group of dogs And this is the the down-the-road extension of the first group because what happens is as they maintain spiritual indifference, it eventually turns into arrogance and condescension, and they literally do what dogs do. Dogs bark and they bite. And eventually what happens is if somebody's heart is not right with the Lord, as they become more worldly and more arrogant, then they start to affect the church, the body, by by criticizing, by biting other believers, by being a nuisance, by, by, by causing all kinds of problems, finding fault and undermining reputations. Listen, I've seen this in every single church I've ever been in. Instead of loving the Lord and serving the Lord, there's a a group always, and I pray it's always a small group, and I pray it will never exist in this church, uh, of people that say, I'm a Christian, but they don't really love the Lord. Then he says there's a second group to watch out for, and it's understandable why we'd have to keep an eye on this. The second group are those he calls the evil workers. Now remember, he's not talking about people outside the church necessarily because people outside the church really don't don't care what happens in here. He's talking about within the body. Evil workers aren't people who are just doing evil because they wouldn't want to be here. What the Spirit is warning about, uh, about here is a more subtle faction of people and what distinguishes them is that they're serving themselves instead of serving the Lord. Remember last week, and this fits with our last week's study, last week we talked about the three characteristics of people who are serving themselves. They're complacent, they complain a lot, and they show cowardice in terms of spiritual maturation and ministry, especially evangelism. So he says, continuation of chapter 2, we have to be on guard against those that are evil workers. In other words, they're, they're doing what serves them, what benefits them, what values them. This is why he spent so much time pointing back at Timothy and Epaphroditus and saying, look at their example, because they're serving so faithfully that they almost died from doing the work of ministry because they care so much. Paul says we've got to be on guard We've got to look for people who love the Lord and love others as themselves because Jesus said that's the two greatest commandments. So when we see complacency, we need to lovingly challenge it and spur each other on to maturity, knowing that very often when you challenge somebody for complacency, they're going to turn their back and reject you and say, get out of my face. We need to look for complaining And listen, we need to not listen to complaining, especially when it's about another believer. The Bible's very clear about that. If you have a problem with a believer, you don't go talk to somebody else. You go talk to the person. And if you're the one who's being talked to, don't listen. Don't get caught in the middle because it's not going to end well and it's going to rob you of your joy. 
Third, he says, beware of people that don't love the Lord and are cowardly about their growth. So we've got the dogs who are worldly, even though they say they're not. We've got the evil workers who are living for themselves. Third, I know this is discouraging, but we've got to understand this. Third, he says, beware of those who are of the false circumcision. Now, unlike the dogs who are spiritually impure and the evil workers who thought they were pure but but aren't filled with the Spirit, we have this group. This group is still putting confidence in their works to save them because they don't understand or aren't willing to understand what Christ has done for them. If there's one thing about faith, it's that it involves yielding. But so many people in the world want the benefits of being a believer without the commitment of their heart. And it doesn't work that way. You can't receive the benefit of salvation, the benefit of God's power, the benefit of God's holiness, the benefit of his sufficiency and health for your life if you are not willing to commit your heart to him. And what Paul's talking about here, and it was rampant throughout the New Testament, is people that were committing ritualistic actions thinking that would satisfy the Lord, but as the Bible says, their hearts were far from God. And that was emphasized by the fact that they were still physically being circumcised as an act of obedience to the law, and they were telling the new Gentile believers, and this was a problem in Galatia, you need to be circumcised in obedience to the law. And what they didn't realize and didn't understand is that Jesus already fulfilled the law. We don't need to go through those ritualistic actions anymore because Jesus said, I am introducing a new covenant through my blood. So Paul writes to the Philippians and he said, beware of those people that are cutting their flesh for no reason. The the point is not surgery on the body. What God wants to do is surgery on their hearts. And really, this alone is why salvation by works fails the verification text because we can do any good work without heart. People around the world this morning are doing wonderful, sacrificial things. They're serving one another. In many ways, they put the church uh, to shame for, for how much they're doing to help other people. But the motive behind it is, is altruistic and maybe selfish, but it's not to honor the Lord. So we can do good works. We can say, look at me, I did this and this and this and this and this. But if the purpose isn't solely and I mean solely to glorify Jesus Christ and to let other people know about them, then it's kind of a waste of time. He says, beware of the workers of the circumcision, the false circumcision, who are cutting the flesh, but they won't allow the Spirit of God to cut their hearts. Then Paul talks, i got to wrap this up. Look at verse 3. Paul talks about worshiping in the Spirit of God and glorifying in Christ Jesus and putting no confidence in the flesh. See, that word worship is really important. It means to serve and to show honor to. He says there are people there that are worshiping God legally. And by that I mean they're, they're trying to adhere to the law and trying to save themselves. They're doing outward actions to prove their sincerity. But what the problem is, is that leaves the door open to obeying simply to show off. And if there was one group that Paul could look at, it was a group that he had been part of. 
The Pharisees, even to this day in Jerusalem, you can tell who they are. You can tell who the ones are that are, that are the religious people because they're walking around in long black flowing robes. Remember the last time I was in Israel, we saw this on the streets of Jerusalem. Long black flowing robes and hats and they've got phylacteries, which are little boxes uh, with portions of scripture and they're wrapped around the arm and tied so they stick up and some have phylacteries on their heads. You can look it up. Uh, this afternoon on, on the internet, what does a phylactery look like if you've never seen it? And you'll see a picture of a person in black, and they've got a box on their forehead. And the Pharisees would wear bells on their robes, so when they walked, you would hear them, and you would say, oh, look, there's a Pharisee. And they would strut around very pompously, and they wouldn't talk to anybody, and, and they were with their bells and their phylacteries and their robes, and they were showing off because they wanted people to look at them and say, look at how holy they were. But Jesus says, you know what you are? You're whitewashed sepulchers. There's nothing in your heart. You make a show of yourself, you act like you're spiritual, but there's nothing going on inside because it's all for you. Listen, true worship is not obligatory. When we sing and we pray and we give and we live for the Lord, we don't do it just to do it or we don't do it because it's Sunday morning at 9.30. We do it and we should do it because we want to say, Lord, we love you. Lord, we're so grateful to you. Lord, where would we be without you? Oh God, accept our worship because we love you so much. We sing and praise God. Listen, this is what it should be because we can't contain our joy to declare how much we love God. And some of you are still uncomfortable with that. You weren't raised in the church, or maybe you were raised Catholic or Lutheran, and it was very, very, uh, you know, kind of sterile and unemotional. Listen, I was raised in a mainline evangelical church as a pastor's kid. It wasn't until college that I felt comfortable enough to do it to the thought to raise my hands in worship. College. I was 21 years old going to a church in downtown Chicago. First time I raised my hands in worship. Now, raising your hands isn't the greatest, I mean, it's not the only way to express praise. What I'm saying is so many of us come from a background where we just didn't do that, or we don't sing out loud because we're insecure, or, or we're nervous, and, and it's uncomfortable. I get that, okay? I get that. But think about what God's done for you. Think about what God's done for you. He has redeemed you from sin. He has delivered you from darkness. He has rescued you from hell. When we come in and sing and praise God, we are going to have to show a little bit more emotion. And I'm speaking to myself too. We can't just say, well, I'm going to look at the words and I don't really feel comfortable singing. That's okay. You know what? I want to hear you. I don't care if your voice is horrible. Sing loudly. Praise God because you love him, not because you're worried about what your neighbor is going to think. Worship is in spirit and in truth. When we pray, so many people uncomfortable with prayer. When we pray, all we're doing is thanking God that we can come into his presence and we can boldly approach his throne of grace as his children. The Jews couldn't do that. They had to wait for the high priest to go into the temple. God says, the veil is torn. You can walk right in. 
And when we pray, oh, I, I hear so many times, and I'm not being critical, and I say this, Pastor, I don't know how to pray, and how do I pray like you and other people do? Listen, there's no formula. I didn't go to a class to learn how to pray. It's taken me 50 years to get to the place where I just go to the Lord and speak. Just talk to him. Just tell him how much you love him. Tell him how grateful you are. And you know what? The Holy Spirit will give you the rest of the words. But don't hold back. And when we give, we don't give like, all right, I'll throw in a couple bucks, just kind of fulfill my obligation. No, we give joyfully. The Lord loves a what? Tell me, cheerful giver. The Lord doesn't love a, eh, couple bucks here, couple bucks there. I'm not talking about money value. I'm talking about attitude. Because remember, Jesus pointed at the widow and said, she gave almost nothing monetarily, but she gave from her heart. And I love that. When we serve the Lord, we're called to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. We worship, we pray, we give, we live. All of these things, not for us. Where are they all directed? Look at the text. They're all directed to worship in the Spirit of God and the glory in who? Tell me. Come on, tell me louder. Christ Jesus. I'm not up here this morning for me. If I am, may God deal with me. I'm up here this morning to say I love Jesus Christ. We don't serve for us. This is so much of the problem in the modern church. We don't serve for us. We serve for Christ. May you never see me on a Sunday morning. May you only see Christ. This is what it's about. Worship is directed to Christ for His glory, not ours. Our, listen, serving for our glory is an indefensible motive. There's no way we can, we can defend that. That's why anybody who's up here worshiping, choir, worship leaders, piano player, whatever, me, we, we can't be up here emoting and drawing attention to ourselves and dressing provocatively and saying, look at us, I can play a guitar, or I can play piano, or I can sing really well. No, that's the wrong motive. I, I've told the worship team, anytime I see that, you're not on the platform the next week. That's why when we pray, we pray sincerely from our heart. We don't script our prayers. We don't say, well, I'm going to just pray words that are unfeeling. We certainly don't, don't make it about ourselves or make declarations that, are, oh, look at that person, they're spiritual. No, that's not how you pray. We're told when we give, you're to give in secret. You're not to make a show. Well, look at me, I wrote a big check this week. No, that's not how we give. We give as unto the Lord. And it's why Jesus says the greatest Christian is not the one that draws attention to himself. The greatest Christian is the one who chooses to be last. That takes the attitude of a bondservant and has the attitude of Christ who was humbled and emptied himself. Listen, if we worshiped like that in spirit and in truth, it would change everything. We would think of it so differently. And it's why we need to be alert to the opposition that the enemy throws at us, trying to get us to trust in ourselves and trying to dissuade us from trusting in Christ. Somehow he thinks if I can show them unholy lives and make them look happy, that, that they'll realize that that's more fulfilling. But we have to realize how futile that is and then compare it to the joy of knowing Christ.
because there is no greater joy than knowing Christ. Now, Paul illustrates this one final way, if you'll indulge me a couple more minutes. Look at one more thing here, because this will, this will be what we study next week. This is an intro to next week's study, and it perfectly aligns with Romans 8 study that you ladies are doing. And ladies, stick with it, okay? Stick with it. I know it's different. I know it's challenging. I'm telling you, stick with it. Look at Paul's words here. First, let's read what he writes in Philippians 3, and then I'm going to read you a section of Romans 8. Put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself even might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone has a mind to have confidence in the flesh, it's me. I'm paraphrasing. So, so what's going on? Is Paul bragging? Is he saying, look at me. I am the man. You want to know what it's like to, to be godly? You just, you just look at me. What he's saying is just the opposite. Let me give you the proof that confidence in the flesh is a joke. Paul can say with complete legitimacy, I have every reason to have confidence in my flesh. More than anybody I know, there, there are specific areas where I have proven myself to be quote-unquote righteous. First of all, I'm a pure Jew. I was circumcised the eighth day. This was not a decision after the fact. I'm not a later convert. According to the law, the eighth day, I was circumcised. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin significant tribe. It was the tribe that sat between the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes. It was the home to Jericho and to, and to Bethel and, and at one time to Jerusalem. It was the most spiritually steady of the twelve tribes. So he says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin and, and I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Both my parents were Jews. I lived in Tarsus for a while, but I am a Jew through and through. So from a heritage standpoint, I'm top-notch. Second, from a legal standpoint, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I'm well-respected. I'm looked up to. We're a, religious, a, a, a very powerful religious and political group. We're at the upper echelon of Jewish culture. We actually take the law and don't just interpret it from the Torah. We, we push it down to everyday life. So when you want to look at somebody that's godly and holy, it's the Pharisees. And I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I'm at the top of the, top of the chart in terms of the Pharisees. So I'm a Jew. I'm a Pharisee. Third look at it. He says, nobody had zeal for religion like I do. And I'll tell you how much. I persecuted Christians. When this whole movement started and, and Pentecost happened and there was all this mess and the church started to grow, I got right in there. I was the one that took the forefront. I was at the, at the stoning of Stephen. I consented to that. I nodded and said, yes, go ahead, kill him because he's a Christian. And we're going we're gonna to quell this movement once and for all. And I went around from city to city and I found Christians and I put them in jail and I killed them. That's how zealous I was. Nobody has obeyed like me. I'm spotless. I'm blameless. He uses that word. Doesn't mean he's perfect. He's saying, look, as much as you can obey the law, I did. So I've got it all. I'm the one you can look at and say, if you're going to be saved by the law, then I'm your man. Now let me prove how useless it is. There's no confidence in the flesh. Listen to what he writes in Romans 8. Ladies, I'm so glad you're studying this. There's a lot of words here. Really listen now with your heart. Spirit of God, help us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Somebody say amen. For what the law could not do, because the law can't save, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their mind on the things of a flesh. That makes sense. Those who are according to the Spirit, listen now, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. And those who are on the flesh cannot please God. What a great word. Paul says, look, I've got the resume, but I'm telling you, it's death. And what we couldn't do, what the law couldn't do in saving us because there was no way we could fulfill it because we're sinful. So the law then became inadequate to save because we're inadequate to be saved. And what the law couldn't do God did. What two great words in Romans 8. God did it. And he sent the Son in the likeness of flesh to fulfill the law and to meet the requirements of the law. So now the righteousness of God, I love this, somebody say amen, is made perfect in us. It's perfected in us. We have no business being righteous, but God says, I'll take care of it. You can't follow the law. Your resume's not enough. You need me. And when you trust me, no amount of good is going to save you. No amount of intention is going to save you because the bondage is too strong and the payment amount is too high. And the only one that can pay it is Jesus. And because I love you and because I'm gracious and because I'm merciful, Jesus paid it. Now, trust him and live for him and stop living like your past. Paul says, look, you want a resume? I got a resume. You want to talk about somebody that have confidence in the flesh? It's me. I can lay out the whole thing and I can tell you, if we're going to be saved by works, I'm at the front of the line. But as he's going to say next week, all of that is garbage compared to knowing Christ. All of it's garbage. Because the flesh offers no hope. And listen, I'm done. Thank you for listening so well. As soon as we lose our confidence in our flesh and put our confidence in Christ, we will become the people that Christ died for. But as long as we keep confidence in the flesh, believing the delusion and the lie of the enemy, we will not be like Christ. So what's your decision today? What have you decided? If you don't know him this morning, if you've never trusted him, you have heard the gospel. You've heard the truth. 
you can put off the old and put on the new. And Christ secured that for you. No more do you have to be under bondage. No more do you have to be under slavery. It doesn't apply anymore because Christ has delivered you from it. And you, right where you sit, right now, can receive Christ and trust in him and say, God, forgive me of all of it. Maybe you're one of these people that Paul described. You've been in church and you've kind of think, well, I made a decision when I was 12. But there's no fruit. There's no change. There's no righteousness. You're just like you were this morning. I want to tell you, you need to trust Christ and say, God, change me. Change me. Change me. Change me. I don't want to be like this anymore. Oh, if you do that, I pray that you'll talk to me after the service. You'll come up and talk to a member of the prayer band. Don't leave here today. I say this all the time, but just hear it again. Don't leave today without making that decision. And listen, those of us that love the Lord, no confidence in the flesh. Nothing. It offers no hope and no security.